Well, I've said several times over the last few weeks that uh, we would eventually come to a place uh, where the narr- in the narrative where we were going to see that Noah and his family brought sin, uh, or, or that the flood didn't eliminate sin, and that Noah and his family brought sin into uh, the new or recreation, and tonight we're finally there. Um, I want you to know up front that originally we were going to cover from verse 18 of chapter 9 all the way to the end of chapter 10. Uh, we're only going to cover the verses that I read through chapter 9, and we pushed the rest of 10 uh, to next week, not only because I ran out of time, um, but it's also actually literarily chapter 10 begins a new uh, section. Uh, and so it, it actually works better that way. Um, our outline tonight uh, has four points. You'll see it in the normal place in your bulletin. Hey, John. Uh, a father sins, a family separates, a grandson suffers, and the son saves. And children, you'll find your words in the normal place of the bulletin as well. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue, all right? Uh, Father, would you give us ears to hear and Would you prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word? Grant me grace, fill me with your spirit, that I might do something good for you and your people this evening. Would you attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to do? And I ask these things for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, several years have gone by. As we come to this point in chapter 9, several years have come, gone by uh, since Noah and his family have left the ark. They've, they've begun their new lives uh, in this new creation. Noah's no longer carrying the weight that he had been carrying for a long time, uh, the weight of being the only righteous and blameless man in his generation. Uh, he's no longer experiencing Um, that persecution um, that he may have and probably had undergone as being a herald of righteousness as he was preaching to a wicked and evil generation. Uh, The Lord was enabling his sons and daughters to fulfill the mandate that he had put before them to be fruitful and multiply by granting them the gifts of children, or the gift of children. And Noah's, uh, God was blessing the hands of Noah And the vines that he had planted were producing grapes that could be fermented into the gift of wine. Life was good, but dare I say maybe a little too good. Because one one night, the man who had found favor in the eyes of the Lord, the man who was righteous and blameless in his sight, the man who had been chosen as the new Adam, the man who God had chosen um, to be in a covenant with, um, the man who had rightly responded in worship as they got off the ark and confessed that God's judgment was right. Uh, he had acknowledged his sin and guilt and the f- guilt and sin of his family. He had thanked the Lord for the grace that God had bestowed upon him, and then he had, in in that sacrifice as well, he had also declared his resolve to continue to live godly and in a holy manner. This same one 
lets his guard down or let his guard down, over-desired and overindulged in the gift of wine that he had been given and became drunk. So drunk, in fact, that he took off all his clothes and passed out on the floor in his tent. And while Moses doesn't comment on specifically about the lack of morality in what Moses had done, he uses words in verse 21, he uses the word uncovered, and he uses the word nakedness in verse 22, and tells us all we really need to know. Noah had sinned against the Lord, and in a moment he lost his self-respect, he lost his uh, honor, his integrity, his decency, and like Adam and Eve in the garden, Guilt and shame had come upon him. And though he was privately in his tent, he could not escape or hide from the Lord. He was laid bare before him. And now, while most agree that Noah's drunkenness is not the point of this passage, I can't I can't not let it move by, or I would be remiss if I didn't share a few things or take the opportunity to address a few things. And the first of, the, first of those is the issue of alcohol, living where we live. Um, the Bible is not silent when it comes to the use of alcohol. It's, it absolutely forbids drunkenness. It absolutely warns sternly of its danger and misuse. But it also says it's a blessing and a gift from the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks positively about alcohol more than it does negatively and neutrally combine. Listen to these words of G.I. Williamson. He says, God Himself provides wine which makes man's heart glad just as He gives food which sustains man's heart. Psalm 104 He promises His people that if they will obey Him, He will bless them with an abundance of wine. That's from Deuteronomy 7, 11, and Proverbs 3 and beyond. He threatens to withdraw this blessing from them if they disobey His law, Deuteronomy 28 and Isaiah 62. The Scriptures clearly teach that God permits His people to enjoy wine and strong drink as a gift from Him. Spend the money, quote, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or straw drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you in your household, Deuteronomy 14, 26. Mr. Williamson goes on to say, under certain circumstances, it is even commanded of God that wine and strong drink be given, Proverbs 31. And since wine was used in the worship of God, Exodus 29 and Leviticus 23, Numbers 15 and 28. The Bible says wine is something that cheers God as well as man. I don't believe anyone would argue with the fact that the abuse of alcohol and alcohol addiction is rampant within our society. I don't think you would find anyone, no matter who you talk to, I think everyone would think There'd be a consensus that it is misused and it's abused by a significant number of people, and that abuse and misuse is is obviously sinful. But the misuse and abuse of it does not cease or does not change the fact that it's a gift. As a matter of fact, most of the things that we turn into idols are good gifts. 
from God that we overdesire and overindulge in. Alcohol is simply one of those gifts. But that being said, of course, living where we live, uh, there are predominantly two positions on the use of alcohol. Uh, Both sides, again, agree that drunkenness is wrong, but there are those who believe that we are to strictly abstain from it, and there are others who believe that we can use it in moderation. And each have their arguments. I'm not going to go through all those. They each have their own arguments on why they believe they're right. And the question we have to ask is, who's right? Which position is right? And the simple answer is, whichever is done in faith. In other words, it's a matter of conscience. If you can enjoy it with faith, in faith, without violating your conscience, partake. If you can enjoy it in faith without violating your conscience, don't partake. If, if, you can in, um, if, if you can abstain in faith without violating your conscience, abstain. We're, we're given the freedom to partake. We're given the freedom to abstain. In matters of conscience, we're given the freedom to develop and, and we're encouraged. Not only have the freedom to, but we're encouraged to develop convictions and to stand by those convictions. And we're also told in Scripture, Paul says that we are to allow other people to, we're given the freedom to, and and to allow other people to exercise their freedom to develop convictions and to stand by them. And we're also told that we at times need to forsake our freedom or set our freedom aside or maybe set our conviction aside for the sake of our brothers and sisters and neighbors who may struggle in a particular area. So let me ask you a few questions in, in light of that. Let me ask you, do you over-desire alcohol? Is it an idol? Are there times that you overindulge and become drunk? Do you regularly misuse it or abuse it? Are you dependent upon it? Can I say if you answered any, to yes to any of those questions, let me call you tonight to repent and to seek help. Talk to me. Talk to any elder who would love to help you in that case. But I also have some other questions. Do you have a strong conviction regarding abstinence or moderation when it comes to alcohol? And do you allow others to hold their strong convictions, even if they're different than yours? Are you willing to set aside your freedom and your conviction when opportunities arise for the sake of someone else, or do you refuse and are unwilling to set aside that freedom when the opportunity presents itself? And finally, do you rejoice when someone who holds a different conviction in this particular area, do you rejoice when they're able to exercise that freedom and faith? Or are you overly critical and judgmental towards those who differ from you? Questions to consider. The second thing I want out of this very first verse, now you know why I ran out of time. Um, The second thing I want to address is the sin of the fathers, or the father, and more than just fathers, those in authority 
the sins of those in authority. Because again, while the passage is not necessarily about Noah's sin and it is about Ham's response to it, had Noah not been drunk, Ham wouldn't have been in this position. So dads and moms and adults in the room, you who are being watched by our children, we need to be mindful of the examples we're setting. The fifth commandment is not simply for children, it's for all of us. So in the words of larger catechism 129 and 130, we have the responsibility to preserve our authority that God has placed upon us. We have a responsibility to protect and to provide for our children all the things they need and are necessary for their soul. We have the responsibility to not seek our own glory and our own ease and our own profit and our own pleasure. We have a responsibility to not counsel, encourage, or favor our children to evil. We have a responsibility to not dissuade, discourage, or discountenance them. In that, or we, to not dissuade and discourage them and discount, uh, discountenance them in that which is good. We have the responsibility to not carelessly expose or to leave, our, um, or leave them to wrong or temptation or danger. We also have the responsibility not to dishonor ourselves or lessen our authority by unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. And so again, a few questions. What type of example are we setting our children? And are we seeking to preserve the authority God has placed upon us? Are we seeking not to dishonor ourselves or lessen our authority through sinful behavior? And when they see us sin, we need to ask ourselves, do they see us repent? And if we sin against them, do we go to them and seek their forgiveness? And finally, I want to address the need to be on our guard You see, Noah was righteous and blameless. He had maintained that righteousness and that blamelessness for a long time in the the midst of immense pressure and persecution. But at some point, he let his guard down. Whether, Whether he was overly confident, whether he was just tired from the fight, or whether he whether he he just didn't believe he needed to be diligent anymore. Regardless, he failed to remain watchful, he failed to remain alert, and he became spiritually negligent. And he failed to flee temptation, he failed to resist the devil, and his sin had enormous repercussions. His sin affected himself, his sin affected his family, His sin affected the nations. Matthew Henry put it this way, Sometimes those who, with watchfulness and resolution, have by the grace of God kept their integrity in the midst of temptation, have, through confidence and carelessness and neglect of the grace of God, 
been surprised into sin when the hour of temptation has been over. Brothers and sisters, none of us are immune from sin, from falling, and we all, you've heard me say this before, none of us sin in a vacuum. All of our sins affect others. So the last set of questions, at least for this first point, are these. Is life hard right now, and are you spiritually weak? Or is life good, and have you grown spiritually overconfident? Have you grown lax in your fight against sin? Are you ignoring your besetting sins? Have you stopped fleeing temptation? And the sins that so easily entangle you, are you no longer resisting your enemy? Do you consider the cost of your sin and who it will affect? Do you acknowledge you're not immune from falling? Well, that brings us to the second verse of our text. Actually, the second two. And it's actually the point of the passage in verses 22 and 23. We see two very diverse responses to this sin of of the father. Ham, the youngest son, Ham enters his father's tent. He sees him or saw him lying on the floor. Um, There are some who say that seeing the nakedness is a euphemism for some other deeper, darker sexual sin, but there are others, including me, who believe it simply means he saw him in his shameless state. So he sees his dad and more than likely lost all, uh, most if not all respect for his dad, and we get that, right? It's understandable that that would be the case, but it's what he did in response that should trouble us. You see, he didn't attempt to help his dad. He just simply left him there on the floor. And not only, though, did he leave him on the floor, he picked up the cloak that his dad had taken off. And decided he wasn't going to keep this to himself, and so he takes the cloak, he runs outside to go find his brothers, probably laughing all the way. Consensus is he failed to fulfill his family obligations to his dad. And rather than protect him, he mocked him. In the words of Calvin, without or with total lack of discretion, he publicized his father's sin to his brothers. Proverbs warns against unkind gossip that he who repeats a matter alienates a friend. How much more serious when that gossip adds to one, one's parents' disgrace. And Alan Ross put it this way, the text emphasizes that Ham's seeing was a disgusting thing. Ham's errant looking and moral flaw represented the first step in the abandonment of the moral code, uh, a moral code. This violation of a boundary destroyed the honor of Noah. Ham desecrated a natural and sacred barrier. His going out to tell his brothers about it without covering the old man aggravated the act. It was a breach of domestic propriety. But rather than joining the laughter, the older brothers do something different. They respond totally different. Shem and Japheth, rather than run and, and go see and join in the mockery, they grab the cloak from their younger brother, and they go to the tent, and they turn backwards at the door of the tent, and they place the cloak on the back of their shoulders, and they back into the tent, and more than likely looking down, waiting till they see his feet, they see his feet, and they, and they pull the cloak off and cover him. 
never looking at him. Again, in the words of Calvin, here the piety as well as the modesty of the two brothers is commended so that the dignity of their father might not be lowered in their esteem, but that they might always cherish the reverence they owed him. They turned their eyes away from looking at his nakedness. In this way, they demonstrated that they honored their father. And brothers and sisters, there are a number of applications we can make. I've only chosen two, and children, I want to start with you. Okay, I know you're circling words, and you're saying, I want your eyes up here for just a minute, right? I, when it comes to the fifth commandment, when it comes to honoring your father and mother, do you, in the words of the larger catechism, 127 and 128, do you honor and esteem your parents in all you say and do? Do you pray and thank God for them? Do you imitate their virtues and graces? Do you willingly obey them? Do you submit to their authority and correction? And do you bear with their infirmities and cover them in love? Or do you dishonor them? Do you rebel against them and show contempt for them? Have you ever cursed them and mocked them? Have you ever speaking, spoken, spoken negatively about them and their shortcomings and their sins to your friends? Or maybe to a brother or sister? And adults, those questions aren't just for our children. The questions are for us as well as for those of us who have parents, but also for those of us who, again, in the words of the larger catechism, are in a relationship with a superior. Do you honor and or dishonor your parents or your boss or anyone else who's superior? Do you bear with the infirmities of your parents or those who are superior? And do you cover them in love or do you speak negatively about them and their shortcomings and their sins to others? And secondly, I, I think we need to consider not only the fifth commandment but the ninth commandment. Because we live in a time when the sins of others are broadcast far and wide for all to see and hear, and every announcement, every time someone falls or every time someone sins or they come to some sort of demise, it becomes a feeding frenzy. People act like sharks seeking to devour the weak and the vulnerable. But again, the larger catechism helps us here in 144 and 145. It's clear we are not to call evil good and good evil. Absolutely. We should never plead for an evil cause or reward the wicked. We should never hide or excuse sin, particularly those sins that involve the mistreatment or harm of others. We're to stand for and speak the truth, and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice, absolutely. But at the same time, we are also to refrain from unnecessarily seeking to uncover sin. We're to refrain from raising or perpetuating false rumors against others. We're to refrain from regularly receiving evil report from others almost salivating, waiting to hear 
We're to refrain from rejoicing in the disgrace and infamy of others. We're actually to charitably esteem our neighbors. We're to love and desire and to rejoice in their good name. We're to freely acknowledge their gifts and graces and readily receive good reports about them. And we're to sorrow for and cover their infirmities, not rejoice in them. Let's now look at how a grandson suffers. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And there may be someone thinking, a curse really for that? But again, Alan Ross puts it this way, it is difficult for people living in the modern world to understand and appreciate the modesty and discretion of privacy called for in ancient morality. Nakedness in the Old Testament was from the beginning a thing of shame for fallen mankind. And again, Calvin says, a piety toward parents is the mother of all virtues. Ham, therefore, must have had a wicked, perverse, and crooked disposition since he not only took pleasure in his father's shame, but wanted to expose him to his brothers. This was no small offense. And we understand when It kind of explains why Paul would include those who are disobedient in the list of those he tells Timothy to avoid in the last days. Have you ever thought about that? Listen to this list. Paul tells Timothy, avoid those lovers of self, or or the people who are going to be in the last days, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen and with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than God. And right in the middle of that list is disobedient to parents. It's serious. And the curse makes sense. And the curse was straightforward. It was simple, but straightforward due to Ham's actions. His grandson Canaan would be cursed and would be a servant to his brothers. And the use of a servant of servants was, was meant to bring clarity, but also force to the curse. And so there was nothing confusing about it to them. Confusing to us a little bit? But not to them. For us, it's confusing. We, we ask questions like, why curse Canaan rather than Ham? Why curse uh, Canaan instead of another brother? Uh, why not curse all the brothers? And as you can imagine, there are plenty of explanations out there on why. And as I often do, instead of talking about things we don't know, let's look at what we do know. Right? And what we do know is that Ham had created a breach in Noah's, uh, Noah had created a breach in his family, um, or Ham had created a breach in Noah's family, so it makes sense that there would be a breach in Ham's family. Okay. Ham had divided the family. Um, but secondly, we also know from Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, that God says this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That means the the judgment that God exercises on the children of those who sin is 
is exercised because the children themselves are evil like their parents. In other words, the children are perpetuating and persisting in the evil their parents are, are in the midst of, and therefore they experience the same judgment as their parents. And this is supported in Ezekiel 18 where, where God makes it clear that He holds each individual person accountable and responsible for their own sin. But the good news is that those children who repent do not experience the same judgment as their parents. The curse is removed from those who repent of their sin. And what do we know about Canaan's descendants? Not only did did they not believe, but they descended further and further into sin. Even worse sin than Ham's. And we know that from our study of Leviticus. Leviticus 18 is pretty clear of what the Canaanites were involved in. So, in the end, the curse on Canaan for Ham's sin was actually a prophetic judgment. And it was a prophetic judgment for the lack of faith and the sin of Canaan and his future offspring. And I believe this is alluded to in verses 18 and 22 of our text. Twice, Moses describes Ham as the father of Canaan. And I think it was Moses' way of saying Canaan was his father's son. In other words, Cain was just like his dad. Canaan was just like his dad. But while Canaan was cursed for what Ham had done and he himself, uh, and for what he himself and his offspring would do, Shem and Japheth were blessed not only for what they had done, but for what God had done. The wording's a little strange. It kind of catches us off guard, but um, God says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, rather than blessed be Shem. And commentators agree that making God the object of the blessing was Noah's way of of blessing and praising God for being in covenant with with Shem. In other words, um, Noah believed that God was already in a unique relationship with Shem. He believed that Shem was the one that God had chosen. Uh, It was was through Shem that the seed of the woman would come, the seed of the woman that would destroy the seed of the serpent. And of course, Japheth's blessing was that he was going to share in the blessing of Shem, and Canaan would serve them both. Now, we're going to pick it up here next week, and we're going to talk about the lines and who they were and where they lived and how they were dispersed. And for now, let me just say this. Shem will be the line that eventually Abraham and Israel will come from. Japheth will be the line from which the Gentiles will eventually come. And Canaan will be the line through which um, those removed from the promised land will come. And so right after the flood, what we see there, right after the flood, we see God preparing Israel to enter the promised land, um, which was the temporal inheritance, 
that God was going to lead Israel into after redeeming them from Egypt. And it makes you wonder, why, why were the spies standing there going, should we go in or not? Because not only had God promised Abraham, God had been working to bring this about since the flood. And of course, we know from the foundation of the world. And that brings us to our last point. Now, as we went through the first couple of points, we're confronted with the fact that we find ourselves often breaking the fifth and ninth commandments and the other eight, right, if we're honest. But this story doesn't simply point to our law-breaking or confront us with our law-breaking. It also points us to the grace of God. In the story, we see God's grace extended to Shem and Japheth. We even see God's grace to Ham and that He didn't curse the other three sons. He didn't, he didn't curse Cush or Egypt or Put. But we also see it in that Abraham and Israel are not the only ones that come from the line of Shem. Remember from our study of Luke, the genealogy there, Jesus comes from the line of Shem, the son who saves. You see, it was Jesus, the eternal and better son, who honored his father fully and completely. He took on flesh, came to dwell among His creation, and to do the Father's will, a will that included crushing Him. And He fulfilled that will. He was fully obedient to the point of death on the cross for sinners like you and me. It was Jesus, the eternal and better Son, who not only kept the fifth commandment, but kept all of the commandments because He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and to do so for you and me. And everyone who looks to Him in faith, confesses their sins and looks to Him in faith, His righteousness is credited to their account. We lawbreakers and sinners stand justified before a holy and righteous God and our Heavenly Father only because we've been declared righteous in Christ because of His work on our behalf. It is it was Jesus, the eternal and better Son, who not only took on the curse of the law, but Paul says He became a curse for us by dying a death on the tree. Again, for you and for me, a shameful death in order that we might be blessed. So He took the curse for our law-breaking, and we get the blessing of salvation for His law-keeping. Unbelievable. It was Jesus, the eternal and better Son, who did not leave you and me exposed and naked, lying in the shame and guilt of our sin, but rather reached down, picked us up, washed us clean from the filth of our sin and guilt and shame with His blood, and then covered us with His cloak of righteousness. Unbelievable. It is Jesus, the eternal and better Son, in whom we are justified, but in whom we are also adopted. 
and the heavenly family that we're in now because of him transcends any earthly relationship we may, be, may have, any earthly family relationship we might have, no matter what your, my family past might be. In Christ, the curse has been broken. The curse has been broken, and we are now sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. And Christ is our elder brother. And we've been united to him. We're co-heirs with him. And we are awaiting, as we were reminded last week, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to come in the last day. Thanks be to God, and thanks be to God for our salvation that is found only in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Would you bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In the name of and for the sake of Christ, I pray. Amen.